Hey, I'm Tony Duchesne coming to you from my bunker located in East Hollywood. I haven't been outside for three days. And um, the big plan tomorrow is going to get fresh fruit and veggies while I keep distance from other people. I still smile, though. Why do people think you can get the virus by looking at each other? We can look at each other. We can smile. We just don't get close to each other. Anyway, I need to give context uh, to those of you who don't know. We are in a pandemic. So here we are. And I'm lucky I still get to do this thing. Um, but for real context on this interview, uh, this is with Michael Shermer. This was the last in-person interview I taped. So uh, when we talk, we talk, we would talk about the virus, but we're not really schooled in it yet on what was to come. Actually, let me give you more context. We did the interview when you could go to the store and buy toilet paper. And when you got there, you just bought toilet paper. <laughs> what is it with toilet paper? What blows my mind is like I, I was at Whole Foods and like every single thing was gone. All the shelves were gone, but wine and booze was completely stocked. And I'm like, hey, everyone, don't you realize <laughs> the end of the world? You're going to need the booze. I think... Um, well, you know, for those of you who drink, but I think now uh, now the booze is being attacked. So now uh, we're going to be at a point where there's going to be plenty of toilet paper and everyone's going to be like, wait a second, I forgot to get booze. All right. Uh, Drinks with Tony. Hi, this is Michael Shermer. You're listening to Drinks with Tony and we're having some big fun. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Michael Shermer. He's the founder of the Skeptic Society and founding publisher of Skeptic Magazine. His new book is Giving the Devil His Due, Reflections of a Scientific Humanist. Michael, hi. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on. This is great. I, we interviewed many years ago over the phone for an article, and then, but now this is the first time I've interviewed you in person. All right. Well, okay. Here we are in the headquarters of the uh, the nerve center of the skepticism right here. <laughs> well, literally with you, and then also this is the office, right? Yeah, this is Skeptic uh, Society office. We're sitting in our library. We have about 5,000 volumes here that began with my personal library just as a you know researcher and, and historian of science and so forth, and then... Uh, now we get books pretty regularly because we, uh, you know, we review books and I have my podcast. I have authors on, so um, yeah, we we like books. All right, this just went way back in the way back of my brain. Did you grow up born again Christian? Is that right? Oh, I didn't grow up that way, but became I became one, one in That's high school. Right. Yeah, That's yeah. Right. I grew up a Jehovah's Witness. Right. Oh, okay. so. oh, have you read? Um, There's leaving the witness. Yes. Uh, Amber Scora. I had her on the podcast. Very interesting book uh, about, you know, the kind of courage it takes to do that when your entire social network is tied to that and you know nobody outside of that. Yeah, it's really a setup. So you don't know anybody outside and they really just keep it in. Kind of like your chapter in your new book about the Scientologist. I just it feels like there's so many similar similarities. Yeah, yeah. How did you get out? (laughs) <laughs> Someone asked me the other day, it took about, let's say, uh, eight, it took about 18 years to fully get out. And then, but my faith was kind of completely shattered before that. But then I was completely ostracized because I had a novel come out that was based on the Jehovah's Witnesses, labeled apostate. Oh, that became a film. And now they, now it's just like 
they they would rather give Satan a blowjob than talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. What's the name of your film? Uh, Confessions of a Teenage Jesus Jerk. So. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. I like that. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, you know, everyone's got a story, and that's a good story. Yeah. It, well, it's it is great that everyone has a story, and kind of giving themselves permission to tell it, and uh, you know how they. That's why, I, like, leaving the witness. It was leaving the witness. It was such an interesting thing because yeah. she was in China as a missionary, and I, I had I had a very different experience. I was just a son of an elder who was very um, into the mind control but you became a born again christian that's what that's what intrigues me yeah that was more the influence of my peers than my parents you know we know from a developmental psych that um you know peer influence on children fades pretty fast in your early teenage years and peer group influence becomes pretty strong and that was the case for me my friends were just into this although uh, the funny story on that was um I had several friends in high school that were bugging me to, you know, find Jesus and get religion and all that stuff. One of guy named George, he took me to the Presbyterian Church, and I became born again there. But then my friend Frank was a Jehovah Witness. I didn't know about any oh, of yeah. this. I didn't know about any of this stuff. So, you know, I'm like, oh, Frank's going to love to hear about this. Yeah. And I said, Frank, I, you know, I accepted Jesus. I became born again. He goes, well, where'd you do that? It's the Presbyterian Church. He goes, no, that was the wrong one. <laughs> I'm like, oh, no, the wrong one. I, I mean, aren't they all? the? No, they're not the same. This is the right one. That's the wrong one. I'm like, huh. And I filed that in the back of my head like, hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's something that almost has to be a little insulting because you did go through the steps at the yeah. time that you thought was right. And right. so for somebody to go, wait, you're wrong. That's the wrong Jesus. Yeah. That's yeah, the wrong Jesus. Yeah. yeah. I know. So uh, that was the earliest inkling I had that, you know, that, that each of the religions has their own truth right. claims that are exclusive to them. That is, they would be in conflict with some of the others uh even within their the own church you yeah. know and and uh, this is why one of the arguments i make uh, about christians on the resurrection of jesus because they claim well you know there's evidence for this i'm like well it isn't very good evidence oh yes it is it's like okay jews don't accept jesus as the savior they don't believe he was resurrected from the dead right. and they believe in the same god as you the same book at least the old testament right. and they're smart and they know all the arguments you know these are like professional debaters these yeah. jewish rabbis right and they know the arguments for jesus resurrection and they reject it why do you think that is you know and it's like it's a, that it's not me an atheist saying i don't accept jesus as resurrected because they well you're just biased well uh -huh. the jews aren't biased i mean they're you know the same god yeah. You know, same religion, essentially, the, you know, Judeo-Christianity. So anyway, I find that interesting culturally, you know, yeah. in terms of what people believe. And, I've, oh, man, I'm trying to remember. I've, I've re erased so much of my dogma that I used to firmly believe, you know, but I, I'm, yeah, I don't, how would you prove a resurrection? I mean, that's, that's the, well, what is the proof yeah, they use? I can't remember. This is, well, they just make our, well, first of all, they have the eyewitnesses, you know, that, that 500 people attested to seeing Jesus after he was crucified, you know, three days after. Yeah. No, that's not actually the case. One story says there were 500 right, exactly. people. That's very different. Okay, so, and the way to think about it is this, that, um, you know, in ter terms of truth claims, like what is truth? Um, that someone named Jesus probably existed. Yeah, I I'll agree with that. You know, yeah. Ye Yeshua was a fairly common name. 
in that area at the time. And, you know, he's probably crucified because the Romans crucified everybody. I mean, this is, you know, big fun on the weekend. So let's crucify some common thieves, you know. So that there's that, that's sort of an ordinary claim, and we don't need uh, more than ordinary evidence for that. Right. But then just to go into the next step, and then at, three days after he was dead, he was killed, he was raised from the dead. Okay. That has never happened. Yeah. You know, the, you know, a hundred billion people have lived and died before the seven billion people alive today. Not one has come back from the dead, right. or maybe one. Okay, so and maybe he's the one. Right. Now, so th- we're talking about a hundred billion to one odds right. just just by that calculation. So your evidence for that better be really extraordinary. I mean, just stunningly yeah. obvious, and it isn't. It's not. It's not any more. Uh, high quality than than it just ordinary evidence for ordinary claims of Roman life at that time. So, you know the the proper response is to reject that uh, truth claim, or at the at the very least withhold judgment until there's better evidence. Okay. Yeah, and I, now now it's starting to remind me how absurd it was. Where it's like, no, it says in the Bible. Well, it says what? Well, it says, uh, I don't even know if it says 500 or there. Maybe they've interpreted it that way, you know, half a legion divided by 24. But it's, you know, I can't remember the verbiage, but it's just like, it just some, it's just written somewhere. It means nothing because there's no proof. And, and, you know, these books were written decades after the fact. Yeah. We know how memory works and how right. unreliable eyewitnesses are. Oh, yeah. I've lied so much in my memoir stuff because <laughs> I know I'm wrong, but it's it's fun to retell the story. Yeah, and it doesn't even have to be lies. Just like yeah. mis- misremembering is totally common. Yeah. You know, confabulating memories, conflating memories with other memories or other people's accounts yeah. of what happened. You know, I mean, memory is very fleeting. It's not like a video camera where you play it back in the theater of your mind and and the little homunculus in your head watches it and reports back. Here's what happened. I'm watching it now. That isn't at all what memory is like. And therefore, it's, you know, we know from cognitive science that, you know, you can twist people's memories just by the way you ask a question. You know, like uh, Elizabeth Loftus famous research on um, with lawyers and eyewitnesses in, in court cases where you show a video clip of two cars colliding and you, and you ask one group of subjects, how fast would you estimate the cars are going when they collided? Second group of subjects, how fast would you estimate the cars are going when they smashed into each other? And the smashed in group, you know, estimates the speeds higher. Right. You know, so just the adjective you use, yeah. you know, changes it. Or her famous lost in a mall uh, story uh, research with you know, giving adults a story, um, uh, asking them a story that they verified did not happen with their families. That is, do you remember when you were a child, you were lost in a mall? Remember that? And you will see these adults, they have videos of this, you know, going, oh, yeah, oh, I sure do remember that. And, okay, what was, did you hear your voice? Do you remember hearing your voice on the PA system? Oh, yes, and this man came up and he was wearing, what was he wearing? Oh, he was wearing a plaid shirt and a hat. So complete details of memories of, uh, of an event that never happened. Yeah. How can that be? It, so this, this, this calls into question, you know, like police interrogations or yeah. questioning of suspects. You know, if they think you're the guy who did it, they're going to ask certain questions and you're going to be answering in a certain way that's only going to probably feed what they already believe. They, they're they trying to get you to say something. This is not good for, for a, a fair criminal justice system. 
And as and it's funny as you were saying that I was thinking about how I think in those situations where in conflict of sorts, like even if even if it's not high conflict, even if it's like you were lost in the mall, we don't want it. I think we have this innate thing where we kind of just like yeah, let's just keep conflict out of the way. Sure, okay, because that seems harmless. But that you know, just like there's God and Jesus, and that seems harmless for a while until all of a sudden we go down. But I think there's um. What is it? I don't know if you agree with this because you might not. What? But I feel like there's a need to be um, like in the peer pressure thing, even in, even as as adults, we kind of want to be okay with the people around us. Is that true? Uh, or is that, that, that? Yeah, that's right. And uh, much of uh, of what we claim to believe has as much to do with virtue signaling to our fellow tribe members. Right. So you know, people will comment on NAFTA or climate science, and if you ask them, well, what is NAFTA? They're like, oh, I don't know. Yeah. You know but you're commenting on it, yeah, because I'm, you know, I want to show that I'm a, you know, I'm a good Republican or I'm a good Democrat right. or whatever. And same thing with climate science. You know, who knows about climate science? This is a technical science, right? Yeah. And uh, you know, but people can sort of voice their tribal loyalty by you know i'm a climate skeptic you know because those lib liberals they're trying to do right. this you know or i i uh, believe in and i'm against the climate deniers but you know how many people actually study it and come to some conclusion through some means of empirical testing or rational analysis almost nobody right so so many of our beliefs are, are along those lines to convince others of something uh-huh. and it's uh and it just it it seems like with social media we've got tribalism at the worst almost because yeah. there's people aren't putting their face to face with a conversation on one person they're just spouting a truth and then people go I want to make sure that that person likes me even though they think in their head I'm going to say what's right as well I, I, or is that the case yeah, yeah. this is what I've been trying to wrap yeah. my head around no that's uh, that's right I mean social media is really bad for this you know it's yeah. it's almost all virtue signaling. Mm-hmm. Uh, or con- condemning something that, uh, but which is itself kind of a virtue signal, uh, by condemning somebody who's racist or bigoted or misogynist or whatever it is that right. you know, you're signaling to other people that follow you. Look, I am so against that, but it's also a form of pre- a preemptive denunciation. Yeah. You know, I'm going to denounce other people before someone denounces me. Right. right? You're a witch. You know, before I get called a witch. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, and we know that happens in, in pogroms and genocides and witch hunts and, and so forth. Uh, and that's so easy to do on social media now because it costs nothing to post. Right. You know, no energy, no cost. And so it's just you just pour it out there. And then because I'm pretty active on on, on Twitter, and, and there's a kind of a sense like, oh, it's been hours since I posted anything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you follow enough people, I follow, I don't know, a couple hundred people maybe. And, uh, you know, if I'm gone for more than an hour or two, you know, I see that, you know, I've missed out. Oh, all these incredible yeah. things have happened. I better comment. And it's like, wait, wait a minute. Now, so, so sometimes I'll take a couple of days off and I'll think, you know what? I don't actually miss it. Maybe yeah. this is not such a great thing. Yeah. It's, it reminds me of when I did college radio in the 90s because I used to, I remember on Graveyard Shift, I used to beg for phone calls. If there's anyone out there, send me a request. You know, the, the station was 941-2500. I remember the <laughs> phone number like, you know, this is like 25, 30 years ago. And, um, and then after a while, you just realize, wait, how many times do I call into a radio station and request a song? I just want to listen to the radio. And then you realize there might be one, there might be a million. Who cares? And I kind of like enjoy bringing that to social media where I just go, oh, you know, if I put right. something out there, it's hard not to do, though. It's hard not to look and go, wait a second. 
nobody gives a shit. And then like, I'll find out like two weeks later I'm traveling and someone's like, Oh, Hey, I saw you posted, posted that macaroni and cheese and uh, you know, and you're going, what, how was it? I was thinking about that. That's <laughs> funny. Yeah. 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 So, um, you know, the social media landscape has changed the way I think we interact over controversial ideas. Yeah. You know, so, so many of us, uh, self-censor, we're afraid yes. to be mobbed. and or even doxxed you know where they post your address online or something and uh you know this this squelches um open conversation which we have to have you know very few of us are right about everything well no one's right about everything but most of us are wrong about most things so the only way to find out if you've gone off the rails is to talk to other people and 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 if you censor people or you 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 punish them for saying something, then they will self-censor. Mm-hmm. This is interfering with, you know, how we figure out what's true. So giving the devil is due, the theme of this book is that very subject. That is, we have to give our devils their due. Yeah. I mean, who is free speech for? It's the it's for the people we disagree with, yeah. the people we don't like. Yeah. <laughs> now, I'm not talking about, you know, we it's okay to give the nuclear codes to Kim Jong-un or something like this, you know. Um, that's not free speech, you know. And, you know, there's certain restrictions about libeling people. and you right. know. But, you know, that aside, you know, there should be no sacred cows. I mean, let's just talk about anything, even things like, you know, Holocaust denial, you know, some, something like this, which is a pretty nasty, you know, it's it's a pretty dark subject, you know. Right. These these guys are they're pretty anti-Semitic and, and anti-Israel and and so on. I don't like that. And uh, but, you know, I, they they make claims. So to me, the solution is just let them make their claims. Yeah. In fact, let's just broadcast it. Let's let everybody know. Look what these guys believe, and here's why they're wrong. End of story. Yeah. And and it's all. I, I really hate the self-censoring thing. I used to do improv acting. I I hate I hate going to improv troupe things. It's just terrible to watch. But. But it's enjoyable to not censor yourself and see where where you go and and see yeah. where kind of see where you're wrong too. It's fun to it's kind of fun to be wrong and go have someone go no you're wrong, and here's why. Because I feel like we're constantly readjusting. Even just as we walk down the street, we're readjusting to be acceptable yeah. in some way. Yeah. Now it's um, I mean I'm told that a lot of comedians are afraid to yes. go on perform at college campuses because. Everybody is so hypersensitive and woke and ready right. to pounce. And, and, and that, I don't like people who come from that place of let's of the policing looking for it. Right. I think we should come from a place of empathy and kindness and go, oh, that's strange. That guy said a weird thing. Let me see if let me see why he said that. And that and then there would and there could be a discussion and empathy instead of a yeah. point and invasion of the body snatchers, <laughs> you know. Right. Yeah, so uh, I mean, this is this is the principle of giving people the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Just assume the guy you're talking to is not a racist, not a Nazi. He's yeah. not Hitler, yeah. <laughs> and uh, assume they have good intentions. Right. And and then you know wait to be proven wrong otherwise. And most because most people do have good intentions. They're not most people are not bigoted, racist, hateful people. Most are not. And uh, you can find these online. Yes, the you know the the Antifa or the right. tiki torch carrying neo Nazis. Yes, there's a handful of them out there, um, but far fewer than there used to be. You yeah. know, so this is the subject of my previous book, The Moral Arc, about the arc of the moral universe is long, but it's bending. It's bending in the right direction, yeah. and uh, you know we can document that, and that's a good thing. So let's remind ourselves of that. And when when you're talking to somebody, just assume this person's probably more liberal than I think that they are, you know, because conservatives today are more liberal than liberals were in the 1950s. Just take that half 
century or so or more of progress. And, you know, most of us have had our consciousness raised just from the bottom up, just through television and novels and comic strips and, and films and the way we talk to other people about other people, you know, the kind of references you make to others. You know, if you look at uh, literature and films, say from the 1930s, 40s and 50s, the way people talked about Jews and blacks and women, it's embarrassing now. It's like, yeah. oh, geez, wow. Uh, that, you know, and without anybody like making an official pronouncement about it, you know, no, you know, laws passed, nothing like that. Just like we've all been kind of thinking about this yeah. and having our consciousness raised. And that's a good thing. I agree. I feel, and I, this is something, well, this is something I've had to work on because I used to get a lot of panic attacks and I was severely agoraphobic like 10 years really? ago to the point where I checked myself into a hospital. Yeah. But, um, agoraphobic, so you didn't like going outside. Well, or, or it's going more of a fear of panic attacks and an anxiety thing. Uh, um, that's when my belief system from out of the Jehovah's Witnesses was completely right. shattering. So I just, I kind of had no reference point. Um, well, okay. So I was going to say something else. <laughs> well, but, but, but what's your anchor now to kind of prevent that anxiety from not having that religion? That That's a good question. <laughs> um, well, it's a good question because this is a, a topic amongst atheists, secular, yeah. humanists, skeptics, and so on. Is like, well, if we do our job and, and, and we see the decline of religion and the rise of the nuns and so on, are we going to replace that with something? Do we need to replace that with some kind of worldview, some sort of structured belief right. system that's not supernatural, right. you know? That, and so, you know, so secular humanists have, you know, secular wedding ceremonies and secular oh. funerals and places you could go on weekends for the Sunday ceremony where people light candles and have a spiritual experience, you know, yeah. in, in a way. This is premised on the assumption that people need something like that. Now, I'm not sure that's true for everybody or even most people, but a lot of humanists think so. So they've yeah. kind of structured these ceremonies and these um, you know places to go, of worship yeah. or whatever you want to call it. Sunday, what, what's that called? Some of the Sunday meetings, uh, you know, or the the secular, the um, Unitarians. You know, they have these okay. univer Universalist Unitarians have these Sunday meetings. You know, and they light candles and they sing hymns to Newton or whatever. You know, it's right, right. it's really kind of funny. People actually give testimonials about like how they lost their religion, like you and I just uh -huh. did. You know, like that's a kind of a, a reverse testimonial. I like that. But in a way, I think it's it's um, it's acknowledging that okay, this is some part of human nature that you know yeah. we're social. We like to be with like-minded people. Yeah. And if you're, say, not a Bernie bro where you're going to political rallies and you need something else and you're not a member of a bowling league or something, you know, maybe that's where you go. Yeah. And it's your fellow humanists or skeptics or atheists or, or something like that. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, I mean, now we're up to, uh, you know, a quarter of all Americans and a third of all millennials are nuns. They have no religious affiliation. Huh. Now, they're not necessarily atheists. Yeah. Um, maybe they follow Deepak Chopra's kind of Western Buddhist style of of spirituality, uh, or something like that, uh, or some kind of New Age spirituality. But they're not committed to a religion, which we see as a good thing because religion has a lot of uh, dark side yeah. to it. Um, but but where, what are they going to turn to? Is the question. Yeah, and the Deepak, uh, I always get his last name wrong. Chopra. Chopra. Yeah, um, it's. It's cool, but there's some of it that's just like really goofy. I'm like, all right, now I'm not in that part, but I, yeah. that part's pretty cool. But for me, um, well, when I was growing up, it was music, and then I found uh, books. I found novels when I was in my 20s. I, I never really read novels before, and so I think that's kind of been my anchor where we can tell stories. 
and I could just feel like a creative person and tell stories. And I get to teach, I get to teach it as well. So I get to teach uh, at least once a week. That's almost like my church, I think, is oh, my, yeah. I got my, uh, I teach at UCLA Extension. So I have, I have my group and we're working, I'm just banging out the stories and it's just the, the adder, I almost, I think I worship storytelling in some weird way. Is that, a, I don't know if it's worshiping yeah, like is a good way to yeah. say it or not, but it's kind of the enjoying embracing our story and then also because uh, i had to learn how to kind of be a human and feel like equal with like even with you right now like 15 years ago i would have sat here and probably looked exactly the same but in my head would have been a dilemma of he's not one of us even though i wasn't one of them anymore but it takes a while to get that out of the head interesting yeah well so i mean in a way science is this modern story of our origins yeah. and meaning and purpose uh, of life. I mean, this is one of the things that we work on here is to provide answers to, you know, where we come from, where are we going, what what does it all mean without the supernatural element to it. And that, in a way, is a story. This is why, you know, Carl Sagan's Cosmos or the new reboot with Neil is a kind of, for a lot of people, kind of a spiritual um, experience. It's a story. But it happens to be a story with evidence. It's a true story, as far right. as we know. True with a small T, not a capital T. But um, And the story may change, and that's okay. But it's yeah. still kind of a grounding story. So we think you know, stories evolve perhaps as a kind of form of virtual reality to play out in your head. Um, relationships with other people and power struggles and you know the meaning of life and so on through stories. It's a way of you know, kind of a, a low-risk way of of imagining what life could be like in the future without actually having to go through it uh-huh. <laughs> or maybe you're practicing or rehearsing, you know, what it's going to be like. And then you've kind of practiced a little bit, a little bit like how athletes visualize the, their yeah. sport, you know, before they do it, it helps their, their training. Something like that may be the purpose of stories. And, um, and that's, I, and I was intrigued cause I, I read the Jordan Peterson chapter in your book as well. Right. And he, but I really, I really liked, how he brings the Bible mythology into the uh, archetypes of storytelling. And that's kind of when I go, oh, yeah, I remember, you know, I remember that believing that story from top to bottom, no matter, no matter what. But right. then they got him and he kind of like breaks it down to, yeah, it probably didn't happen. But and I'm like, ah, all right. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah, so that, actually that brings us back to the, the Jesus resurrection story. See, well, you know, where I am skeptical that this ever happened. Um, but if Jordan, someone like Jordan says, well, I don't care if it really happened or not. It's mythically true. That is to say, we should all bear our own cross. Life is hard. We have to, you know, we have to bear our burden. We need to forgive people, you know, born again, we should start over and, you know, erase your past and move forward. And, you know, if that's what you mean, then okay, I, I understand that, you know, there's value in that. And maybe you'd even say truth value in a kind of a mythic sense or psychologically sense, but not literally true. You know, so I think it's good to make a distinction between, you know, objective external truths and subjective internal truths. You know, when I say, you know, I like dark chocolate and you like milk chocolate. Well, you know, this this is not an empirical question. We're going to see who's right. (laughs) You know, this is a kind of an internal preference of just that's my truth. 
you know, and uh, whereas if, you know, the creationist says, well, I think the earth is 10,000 years old, and the geologist says, no, no, it's 4.6 billion years old. Yeah. Here's the evidence for it. What's your evidence? You know, we can we can settle that one right. with evidence. So it becomes not just my opinion, but an objective truth. So the goal of science is to move from those internal subjective senses or intuitions we have about the world to objective truths that you can look at it and he can look at it and I can look at it and we can all go, yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. But I do like the milk chocolate, dark chocolate thing. I think I could see a 10 episode podcast of, <laughs> of this, how we would just break down who's right and who's wrong. And, and there's something beautiful about being absurdly, um, what do you, what do you call it? Uh, just you know, when your ego is just like feeding into something stupid, yeah. <laughs> I think I like to do that because other people, I feel other people's egos feed into larger things that are stupid and it scares right. me. So I'm like, let's go, let's break down dark chocolate and milk chocolate right now. <laughs> well, I have that chapter in giving the devil his due. Another one of my devils uh, in, besides Jordan Peterson is uh, Graham, Graham Hancock. Yeah. So he's the alternative archeologist who thinks this ancient advanced civilization lived tens of thousands of years before the oldest civilizations that we know of and uh, maybe even a hundred thousand years or more and and some of his arguments are based on empirical things you know he has some site that has an anomaly that could be dated at this age or that age or so on those are super interesting to go through but he also has another element to it which has to do with um, his taking psychedelics and and things like ayahuasca Uh where he thinks there's another realm of truth that you can access, you know, the doors of perception are open once you take the ayahuasca, say, you know, like uh, uh, Thomas or, um, Aldous Huxley's book, The Doors of Perception, you know, that he wrote after he was, whatever he was taking, mescaline or something, I forget what he was taking now, but, you know, he was like, so there's this whole other world I didn't know was there. Right. Well, what do you mean there? You know, it's real in your head yeah. because we know what these hallucinogens do to neurons and neural networks and so on. But that's different than saying it's out there, right. not just in my head. Yeah. And But if your answer to that is, well, if you take the ayahuasca, you'll see that I'm right. It's like, no, actually, I wouldn't. I, it would still be in my head. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, it's just in people's heads and our brains are wired in, in similar ways. So, you know, we're going to have could have similar experiences, much like near death experiences. Yeah. There's certain commonalities amongst them because our brains are wired in the same way. So, of course, there's going to be some commonalities. Yeah. But how to explain the differences? You know, why do Christians see Jesus and, and Jews and Buddhists, Hindus don't see Jesus when they go to the other side? Right. You know, there's a cultural element to it that, yeah. that tells us, okay, this isn't really real. It's still in people's heads. Yeah. The near-death thing intrigues me because when I was a kid, I had a, when I was 20, I had something pretty close to it. And it was, I was on this boat on this lake. And then every time I came back to and the EMTs and the, everyone was screaming at me to like stay, stay with them, really? it, it, it would like happened? turn over. I had a tear in my esophagus that was bleeding out. So I lost a lot of blood. Oh. And um, How did that, happen? Uh, that was <laughs> that was the same year that my uncle tried to kill himself. My dad had a nervous breakdown. Really? Uh, my sister attempted suicide. The elders of the Jehovah's Witnesses blamed it all on me because I touched a girl's boobs. So, so well, there was high stress going that's on. That's true. If you do that, you'll have hell to play. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. They might have a point. They really said that? Oh, yeah. No, it, was, it devastated me. That was when I got into college radio because I still believe full-heartedly that I was probably going to die at Armageddon. But then I took radio classes just so I wouldn't lose my mind. And that was one of the biggest um, 
biggest things in my life that really like shifted things for me. Oh, but the near death experience thing, I, I chalk it up to our body is in such trauma. It's trying to find a, it's trying to find something for you to like, it's like, here, smell this, smell this. Um, and you know, people say they're going to the light or whatever. For some odd reason, mine's a boat, but what, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's something out there. I just think it's in my head. Oh, okay. In my head, I'm going to be on a lake. Right. And that's a nice thing to have in my head. Yeah. It's, it was yeah. beautiful, but, um, why did I go there? We were talking near death. Well, well, we were saying, but but where is it? Where does it actually exist? Still in your head. Oh, right. You know, so if you say, well, I had this fantastic experience. I know it was all in my head, but it was still great. It's like, yeah. okay, then yeah. I'm cool with that. Yeah. You know, it's just when people make additional claims about their experiences, right. that they're really true, or I now know that heaven exists, or, you know, that book by Eben Alexander, uh, you know, Proof of Heaven. Wow. A proof. You know, like proof, that's kind of a word that mathematicians use. Right. Now, come on. That's different than I had this wild experience. Let me tell you about it. Yeah. You know, and, but that doesn't sell many books, right? Exactly. <laughs> it's all about the click date, click, clickbait and selling books. And that's what drives me nuts because then people start buying into it. They're buying into the weird stuff yeah. because of how things were worded. It's yeah. the linguistics, like you were saying. Yeah, that, that, that's right. So, you know, so much of what I deal with here involves the this kind of drive for there to be something else, mm-hmm. something beyond us. Uh, you know, this uh, uh, need for or desire for objective moral truths. You know, it's really wrong or really right outside of us. You know, outside of the earth, it's some external objective source. Well, there is no such thing, but we can still have right and wrong. You know, it's not like, you know, it's all relative if there's no God, uh, you know, so this is one of the arguments I, I make in, in Giving the Devil's Due, those chapters on um, uh, on morality mm-hmm. and trying to, you know, create a science of morality, sort of, <laughs> in as much as I, I, I'm saying that it, there's more than two choices. One, there is a God and therefore objective moral values, and two, everything is relative and there are no more moral values. And, you know, no, I mean, I agree with Abraham Lincoln that if slavery is not wrong, nothing is wrong. You know, we can really say slavery was objectively absolutely wrong. The Holocaust was objectively absolutely wrong, immoral, period, end of story. How can I prove that? Okay, well, so in the book, I kind of make some arguments how we would, how we could discern that using philosophy and science. And uh, without any supernatural elements to that, you know, we evolved to be a social primate species, but individually we want to survive and flourish. There's that constant tension between what I want and what I know you want, so we have to kind of have some sort of agreements where we're going to cooperate and so on. We build a moral system out of that, and if we get large enough, we build a civil society around that, you know, and with mores and rules and customs and laws and, and so on. That's how we got to where we're at. Uh, but, you know, philosophers say, well, you can't derive an ought from an is. You know, Hume's wall there, that, that naturalistic fallacy, as it's called. You can't go from is to ought. Now, technically, I think that's probably true. But you can say certain things that, uh, to me, transcend just my opinion, your opinion, right. or the opinion of we're Westerners or we're Americans, so we yeah. have this. No, there are certain u- universal moral truths, I right. think, universal meaning you know, for our species anyway. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, there's some basic ones like, you know, survive, flourish, don't enslave people, don't torture people. Right. You know, the people don't want that. So I so that's I try to make that case in the book. Yeah. In part because, you know, this is I'm trying to still my whole life trying to find an answer to that theist's challenge. Without God, why should I be good? Yeah. 
You know, well, can can you can, you can't think of any good reasons why? I mean, come on, put yeah. your thinking cap on here. How about because it's uh, other people will appreciate that and and that maybe they'll reciprocate, but not. Uh, but I don't mean in a calculating way, like it's a utilitarian calculus, but that you feel better about helping other people and they feel better helping you, and that's a good thing. It's fun. It, it's I just find it fun. I, I would rather wave someone through a stop sign and have them wave and give me appreciation then honk my horn and flip them off so I can get to my place 30 seconds earlier. It's such a, it's such a more fun life of just giving someone a wave. You know, it's- that, that's right. And, and I think there's been more of that over the centuries. That is, we're getting better at taking the perspective of other people, the principle of interchangeable yeah. perspectives. I can imagine being you um, and you can imagine being me. And that's kind of the basis of the golden rule. And, you know, trying to see the world through somebody else's eyes then allows you to make that moral calculation. Well, maybe I shouldn't do this to him because, you know, if he, if he did that to me, I wouldn't like it, you know? And so, I mean, religions discovered this, you know, millennia ago, but there's, there's, you know, there's sort of an evolutionary logic behind it. There's a game theory, game theoretic um, calculation you can do behind of why that actually works Mm -hmm. well. And it begins with the Copernican principle. That uh, Copernican principle is that we're not special. We're not the center of the right. solar system. We're not the center of the galaxy. We're not the center of the universe, and so forth. Right. Uh, so I apply that to myself. I'm not special, yeah. right? And, yeah. and 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 neither are you. So I can't. If I want you to take me seriously, I can't ask you to privilege me, mm-hmm. just because I'm me and you're not. Because yeah. there's nothing special about me in that regard as a moral agent. Right. You know, we're all equal in, yeah. in that sense. And therefore, we, if we're going to build a moral system, it, we should not favor any one person or any one group. Right. So this is the basis of John Rawls's system, his theory of justice for a social, social just, justice system, is what he called a veil of ignorance. Like yeah. when you write a law, uh, you got to write it in a, in a way that you don't know which group you're going to be in. To see who, you know, you don't know if you're going to be a male or a female or black or white or a Jew or a Catholic or an atheist or tall or short or rich or poor. You don't know. So therefore, you want the the law to be as fair as possible to everybody. The simplest analogy of that is, you know, you, you have a slice of cake and you have to cut it in two. Well, you cut it and I'll pick, or I'll cut and you pick. Right. So th- this will ensure that it's going to be as close to 50-50 as we could get, uh-huh. because I don't know which piece you're going to pick, so I better make it as fair as I can. Yeah, I remember that from being a kid, where it's like <laughs> cut it in half, and then right. you, the, the the negotiations we have, even when we're like three and four years old, it's just, it's setting up to have negotiations, where even when we're talking on a podcast, and you know, we have a conversation, we're kind of negotiating with each other in, uh, in a weird way. That's, it's. That's it not now now it feels weird and intimate, but <laughs> yeah. well, Paul Bloom's research at Yale, he and his 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 wife's lab with little children, they show us, you know, almost really pre-verbal mm-hmm. uh, a sense of right and wrong, where they have these little puppet shows and they track their eyes and see which way they're looking and so on. So you have a, a good puppet and a bad puppet. So the, the good puppet's trying to push this ball up the hill, and this other puppet comes in and either helps it push it, uh, and, and they make it to the top or the the other puppet comes and slaps the ball down and makes makes it hard for the good puppet to get the ball to the top and then the babies prefer the good puppet to the bad puppet for example yeah and it, but just by which one which one would you like to pick yeah. or hold or whatever and some babies actually slap the bad puppet like that was bad uh-huh. you know? so anyway there, and these have been replicated very interesting research showing that you know in a like as young as maybe one you know these little babies have a sense of right and wrong 
and, and even when they're around adults that you know drop something or, or, or look totally stressed out the babies will be kind of empathetic like you know they, they sort of want to reach out and comfort the adult yeah. very early on you know so paul thinks you know we're kind of born it's in our genes in a way yeah. like a sense of this is good this is bad this is right this is wrong yeah. this person is good this person's not good i can trust this person can't trust that person yeah. you know and that seems to be wired in this is not culture right now culture tweaks it of course you know uh, in terms of what we're going to call something that you're supposed to feel guilty about you know you ate meat on friday you're in your case you celebrate celebrated christmas and jehovah witnesses don't celebrate oh, christmas yeah, yeah, yeah. you know thanksgiving you have thursday dinner instead right. of <laughs> oh you know <laughs> i know i know about this yeah it's crazy now of course you're going to feel guilty um about this or that based on your religion or upbringing but the, the deeper question is why should we feel guilty about anything why, why is the sense of guilt even there? What's the purpose of that? Yeah. Well, it's because we're social and we have to get along and people screw up. Then you should feel guilty when you, you, know, you do somebody wrong and they're going to be upset. And you should respond in a way that you, you convey, you know, hey, I'm really sorry. I feel so bad I did this. I shouldn't yeah. have done that. And then, you know, you, you negotiate like we were just talking, right. you know, and, and, uh, and then we work out, work it out and, and move on. That's interesting bringing up the Jehovah's Witness aspect of it because it's so absurd to be, um, and you know, because this, my, this has skewed my thinking into like, okay, now how do I interact with like world, the real stuff? But um, the absurdity of, I did not celebrate Christmas. Well, good for you. Good for you. Just the positive reinforcement. Yeah. But if I did, then I would feel guilt. And there's a weird group that brings in kind of the group think thing where we feel guilty, but we can be shifted from uh, from our social aspect, I guess, or our culture, where it could be like it could be unhealthy guilt, if that you know, like touching boobs. Right. You know, <laughs> I, you touch a boob, your whole family's gonna go into crisis. Propose running an experiment. Okay, we're gonna touch, <laughs> we're gonna touch one hundred boobs, and 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 then record any bad things or good things that happen. <laughs> Uh, I don't th- I'm raising my hand to volunteer right now. Yes. I don't think that would go over with the elders. <laughs> they would not approve that. Not to mention the IRB would uh, board would not approve right, that right. ethically for research. Anyway, yes, that's crazy. Well, I, you know, and then sometimes people get paid for research studies, so I can pay certain women fifty dollars a piece to touch <laughs> right. their boobs, and right. you know. <laughs> oh, boy. Are you in with me on this? <laughs> Uh, I'm happily married. I'm not touching any boobs <laughs> other than my wife's. Yeah. But I would love to see the, 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 the elders, the Jehovah Witness elders squirm at that one. Oh yeah. I, I always, and I, cause there was five of them when they proclaimed that to me and I was just blown. It hurt. I ask Amber about this, uh, had her on the podcast, you know, what, what is the obsession of these old guys with young women's sexuality? Yeah. You know, cause she has a section in her book where, um, you know, she kissed a boy, whatever she did and they sat her down the tribunal and you can just picture right. these three old guys that probably haven't had sex in 20 years yeah. and they're like, Oh, we got this 18 year old tell us about where he touched you and yes. where you touched him and it's like it, it, it's just so kind of perverse and uh but so you know evolutionary psychologists think um and people study religion that <clears throat> religions are obsessed with sexuality because 
this is uh, this is something they need to control in terms of like the uh, population of our believers. You know, we don't want you turning gay because you're not going to have babies then. Oh, <laughs> or right. if you're having sex with too many people, then this you know the, then we don't know paternity yeah. of the babies or the spread of you know STDs and so on. All these things are the kinds of things that religion want to control so they can control people and keep a kind of a, a, a unified group. Yeah. You know, and, and and sexuality is one of those. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just it, it's so consistent across all religions. They're just obsessed with sexuality and the purity of the purity and sanctity of your body. And I've even noticed this, you know, on a, in a different realm of like um, new age people that are really into um, like organic foods and no GMOs and the purity right. of food. It's almost like a, a sexual purity. Like the, I'm only going to put pure foods in my body. Right. It's the same, it's that same kind of sacred sacredness of the human body. Yeah. And, uh, and of course, religions have all kinds of taboos about food. Yeah. Yeah, that maybe in some context it made sense, but you know now it's more of just kind of social control yeah. and kind of unifying of the group. We all believe these things here, and you're not going to do these things over there. Right. Yeah, exactly. And and what and you're right about the um the intimacy of how far they go with uh, with the elders asking those specific questions. I remember because I I got I was in front of a bunch of tribunals, so I came in and out, and I really was trying to stay a Jehovah's Witness and stay in. And um, there was one time when I had my, I put my hand, I, I put my hand on a girl's vagina and I shouldn't say girls cause I'm, I'm old now, but she was the same age as me. You know, I was like in my twenties or whatever. And, um, and therefore, and they said, did you penetrate? And I said, I don't know. Cause I didn't know. And they said, you have to know. And I'm like, no, I don't know. I really didn't know. And they kept bugging me about this. And they're like, you have to confess. And I'm like, I don't know. Later, after I got married, I found out. Oh, that's how I would have known. It's warm in there. Right. <laughs> I, but I that, that I that's came from. You guys didn't show you some videos. Here, let's oh, go on. God. Let's go on Pornhub and show you what this looks like. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's it's Crazy. so it's it's such a weird thing because I really didn't know because I'd never gone that far before. <laughs> See, this is why you know back to the giving the devil his due. This defense of free speech. You know now it's. I mean, it used to be that liberals were always in support of the First Amendment and free speech, and conservatives weren't. I mean, they were obsessed with controlling, you know, prostitution, pornography, flag burning, Madonna's videos, yeah. and so those are all forms of free expression. And in court cases, they won, they won those, um, and, and conservatives lost those. And you know now conservatives are going, hey, we're the party of free speech, and the and the liberals are against free speech, you know, because of hate speech and yeah, yeah. kind of censorship and so on. And so one of the reasons I wrote this book was, I, I you know, I want to tell my fellow liberals, you know, hey, we got to own the First Amendment like the conservatives own the Second Amendment, right? And I mean, it's almost it's almost yeah. a, a fetishization of guns for conservatives in that Second Amendment. We got to own that for the First Amendment, free speech. And because uh, that's so important, yeah. and it's you know I'm a, I'm a little worried about the kind of campus censorship and and all uh, that. No hashtag me too because that's a bad joke. But um, yeah, I got it. <laughs> okay, thank you. No, there, there was even that comedian the the case of the comedian in Vancouver who um, was getting heckled and he called out this couple for being lesbian or something and kind of you know it may I don't know the exact thing but it may have been a low blow but at the same time it's a comedian. They're trying to work a crowd, and I think he had to pay like fourteen thousand dollars or something, because it was, because it was the Canadian stuff is scaring me. 
has hate speech laws. Yeah. yeah. This is where I, I first encountered that with the Holocaust deniers. They, they, it's illegal in Canada to deny the Holocaust. I mean, it's bizarre because, like, you know, if I say, you know, I think it was 10 million Native Americans died and the real number is like 50 million. Am yeah. I a denier? Right. Am I a Holocaust denier? Yeah. You know, there has to be room for debate on these questions. And yeah. you can, there's no place you can draw the line and go, well, th that's the one we're not going to allow people to say. Yeah. It's crazy. Because then you end up with, you know, the comedian in the club. Yeah. And who decided that that was offensive enough that he should be fined? Right. Yeah, the, the, lit the litigious, you know, I remember in the, like, 80s and 90s where we didn't have to wear seatbelts. You know, when I was a kid, my mom used to s sit me on her lap and smoke her cigarette before she became a Jehovah's Witness. And I was a toddler, you know, and, right. you know, it's just... That was the way. Um, that's that, that's uh, why. Why did I bring that up? But I'll talk to my therapist tomorrow about that. But <laughs> the um, the oh, when we the the more litigious we get, and the if like let's say you complain at a restaurant, you go, "This meat is not right. Can I get a free dessert?" And then you get a free dessert, and that's almost like an emoji on a social media <laughs> thing, right? Weird. So then you go, "Wait a second. If I go and say this meat's not right at every restaurant." And I get yeah, free dessert. Yeah, yeah. So you give them enough bonus points and then they can, they start to be shitty human beings, yeah. but they know they can get something. So I think right. there's a real shitty human being aspect right. to it. I, not that I'm putting any of these words in your mouth. I'm just giving my story, yeah, but, right. but there's a shitty, they, they, Oh, I could be this shitty and I can get something. I get a reward. And then they continue to be shitty and they get rewards. And I don't think that's a great place to come from. That right. scares me. Yeah. Yeah. So have the Jehovah's Witnesses stopped making predictions of the end of the world? I wonder if they're, <laughs> I wonder if they're jumping on the coronavirus thing now. Go here it is! Finally, we've it's finally going to happen. They, I think they are. That's what I heard. Yeah, they canceled their they canceled their meetings, and they're they're getting their uh they're they're like this. Uh, some people are saying this is it. Here we are. Oh boy! Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Okay, yeah, because yeah. if you make predictions long enough and none of them come true, you find yourself hoping one of them will come true. Yeah, exactly. so, so you don't look like an idiot. <laughs> when when Trump was became a president that was the end here we go the, four years ago i i remember the rumor mill coming up really? from the jehovah yeah through the jehovah's witnesses to the half jehovah's witnesses that gets to the ex jehovah's witnesses and it was just like oh trump's in office this is it he's the one that's going to take us through uh into the end and the armageddon's coming oh really yeah. oh wow okay well that may happen for other reasons but <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oh boy. What a what a world we live in now, huh? Uh, it, it scares me. And I mean, it, it doesn't scare me, but it scares me the group like the group think thing where I'm just like, you guys are kicking yourselves in the ass, man. We we I don't want the, the Trump thing should have we should have learned a few things. Yeah. We should have learned to talk on a higher level. We should have learned not to be nasty to each other. But the minute he was nasty, a lot of people went in nasty underneath and I'm like, "You're liberal. You think the same way as me. You were yelling at people for fat shaming. Now you're fat shaming him. You can't you can't go that low. You have to stay on high. It's... Yeah, I think to defeat Trump, the Democrats need to really unify and quit inside fighting each other. Oh, yeah. It's no good. The progressives versus the liberals or whatever the division is. You know, once, say, well, when we record this, you know, on the eve of the next uh, primaries where Biden will probably get the nod, yeah. you know, then when that if that happens, then you know there's got to be unification around that, yeah. because the Republicans they're not going to divide up, they're going to back their guy. They don't care what he does. Right. You know, he himself said I could shoot somebody on Broadway and I they wouldn't care. And it's like, yeah, he's probably right. Yeah. And uh, you know, I, uh, this I just read this book, The Power Worshippers, Catherine Stewart. 
I'm going to have her on my podcast. And, you know, it's all about the Christian right has made a comeback. Wow. You, know, the, you know, they were big in the Reagan years, moral majority through the 90s. And, you know, and, and then they kind of went dormant for a while uh, during Obama and the rise of the nuns and all that stuff. I sort of lost track of them. But really, they've been kind of working behind the scenes, grassroots reverends and um, ministers backing politicians to try to get laws passed. I mean, the question is, you know, 81% of white evangelicals voted for Trump. This guy's the least Christian person, you know, in the history of the presidency. How could this be? Because he's going to get us the judges we want to overturn Roe v. Wade, and so on and so on. It's like, okay, so this is about power politics, not religion. And so the concern I have is, I'm going to talk to her about this, it's like, you know, your book is just damning of what they've been doing. But on the other hand, they may go, yeah, so yeah. this is the game we play. Yeah. You know, you guys, you know, brought a, a knife to a gunfight. So I too know. bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're not doing the let's cut the cake in half and you get 50. You pick first. It's like, no, yeah. we're cutting the cake in half. I'm taking both slices. <laughs> right. Here's the knife. Go wash it in the kitchen. Yeah, right. <laughs> yes. I mean, we need someone like a Lyndon Johnson who knew how to play dirty pool yeah. and get things done. All right. Now, um, you know, you came out, you became an uh, evangelical Christian. You got out of the evangelical Christianity. You, you're, you, you're, you're a man that I look up to because you just really dig in and you're really, really thinking, what do you do when you're not thinking? Do you, do you, do you, do you is there ever, what is, what is your, what is your life when you're like, I, I don't have to think about anything right now. Wait, wait, what's that? What's that moment? Uh, I'd say that usually when, uh, when I'm uh, cycling, you know, oh, okay. I, I ride my bike pretty much every day, yeah. or I go take my dog for long hikes, at least an hour. Yeah. Uh, or I play with my kid. I have a four-year-old, and oh, uh, yeah. it, it's big fun. And so there I'm not doing a lot of heavy thinking. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I can think you know heavy stuff anytime, but, uh, right. you know, I, or I just like driving home tonight after this. Uh, you know, I'll just pop in some music and, yeah. you know, space out a little bit. Uh, I, I'd say, but for me, most of what I do, reading books, mostly nonfiction books, history, science, philosophy, and so on, I enjoy it. I mean, I, I like doing what I do such that I'd do it if I wasn't paid to do it, if it wasn't my job. I would do it for recreation, yeah. right? So um, to me, that's when, that's the lottery test, you know. Yeah. Would you do it, if you won the lottery, would you quit everything you're doing? You know, most people, yeah, I wouldn't do any of it. It's well, crazy. Yeah, no, that's no good. You should be doing what you want, if you can. Yeah, yeah. It's this this podcast costs me money. It doesn't make me money, but I get to hang out with people like you and other authors that I respect, and just go, we can have a chat, and it's so much fun. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. 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 Here's my projection. Projection by 2050, everyone on Earth will have a podcast, and <laughs> and we'll all just be talking to each other. So that'll be the end of war. <laughs> I I'm on top of that, and the the podcast needs to be in person because I have this thing about where because you know it'd be so we have a disconnect on the video, yeah, so yeah, yeah. the the tactical in person is just so important. Yeah, yeah, it's better in person for sure. Yeah. Uh, can't always you do that. Uh, when I can, a lot of them are by Skype because the author's in some other country or right. whatever. But anyway, yeah. yeah. Michael, thanks so much for coming on the show. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Good. It was a good conversation. Yeah. Surprisingly, huh? <laughs> Not surprisingly. A couple of ex-religious people. <laughs> Michael Shermer on Drinks with Tony. Check out his book, Giving the Devil His Due, Reflections of a, Scient- a Scientific Humanist. 
And how utterly bad was the timing on that one when I when I was talking about how all interviews need to be done in person? Well, that's the last one I taped in person. And in a few weeks, uh, I'll well, I'll start rolling out the interviews that are being taped uh, remotely, from Casa to Casa with authors. Um, oh, that should be the new name, huh? Well, think about it. All right, have you been thought about writing a novel or memoir? Well, you know, I do book coaching, and uh, check out. TonyDuchesne.com for more information on that. And I'm also have, I also have my free online workshop, which is usually at the Los Feliz Library. It's coming up on April 6th. No, on April 1st, scratch that, at 6 p.m. Pacific time, open to everybody, and we're going to use Zoom. So April 1st at 6 p.m., it'll be the same type of writing workshop that I do at the Los Feliz Library every month, but open worldwide, which should make it quite interesting. Um... Go to TonyDuchesne.com for more info on that. And if you're interested in book coaching and other classes that um, um, are coming up on the pipeline, I'm also, I'll also post the Zoom link there. Hey, thanks for listening to Drinks with Tony. I will see you next week.